Turn with me, please, first of all, to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. Notice certain things. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. What does set apart mean? Sanctify. You're set apart for this work. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Only God can ordain the minister. The Lord's ministers are ministers of the Lord. They are not ministers of the church. The Lord's ministers are the ministers of the Lord. They are not ministers of the church. The church can issue a credential. The church can bear witness to what God has ordained, lay hands on them and send them out. That is all. That is ordination. Ordination is simply the church recognizing that which God has ordained. The Lord's ministers are ministers of the Lord. They are not ministers of the church. The church has no authority to ordain a minister. It's an authority that denominations and institutions have misappropriated to themselves, but they have no biblical authority. The Holy Spirit's had set out for me, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Notice that initially Paul is playing second fiddle. Later it becomes Paul and Barnabas. When a disciple is fully discipled, he'll be like his master. One of the things that made Barnabas Barnabas was he lived up to his name. His name, Barnabas in Aramaic, Barnabas, son of encouragement. In Hebrew, it would be Ben Oded, Ben Oded, but in Aramaic, Barnabas, Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was the kind of guy who liked to get next to those junior to himself, coach them, groom them. He was the kind of person who would help others to raise to their potential. In my native New York, we have what is by common renown to be, among other things, the greatest conservatory of classical music in the world, called Juilliard. You have to be a prodigy to go to it. Strangely enough, New York, not Europe, leads the world in classical music. Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, Juilliard, Manhattan School of Music, and the like. But most of the best violinists, say, in the world went to Juilliard. Itzhak Perlman and Pinky Zuckerman. Shlomo Mins, most of them went to Juilliard, but most of them were discovered by another violinist called Isaac Stern. Now Isaac Stern was also a gifted violinist, but his real talent was playing Svengali, was finding these prodigies and raising them up. We had another person in New York named Yehudi Menuhin did the same thing. Their talent was in raising up other people. Well, Isaac Stern, again, was a very good violinist, but not as good as the people he trained. <laughs> His genius was making other people 
better than he was. Even though he was very good. That was Isaac's third. That was Barnabas. His genius was letting others increase, even if it meant him decreasing. The real servant of the Lord has a lot to learn from Barnabas. Barnabas is always happy to see someone he encourages, he grooms, he helps train, climb the ladder. This is a high calling. The discipler, the discipler, the disciple becomes more prophets of the Lord than the disciple, but if it wasn't for the disciple, it wouldn't have happened. There would be no Isaac Pearl men, there'd be no Pinky Zucker men or Shlomo men since they were not first in Isaac Stern. There'd be no Nigel Kennedy if they were not a Yehudi Menuhin. Well, there would be no Paul if they were not a Barnabas. Paul begins his ministry and doesn't work out so well. He's wound up being lowered outside the window of Damascus in a basket. He disappears for years into Arabia. Told in 2 Corinthians, at that point he sees Christ and he's taken up to heaven again. And somehow, something happens to him. That's amazing. He writes about the Last Supper as if he were present at it. I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you, as if you were one of the twelve. Something incredible happened to him in those years after he left Damascus. But he shows up about eight years later. Despite the fact he was a Roman citizen, he had the right passport, despite the fact he had a theological education, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees who was tribe of Benjamin from the school of Hillel, a disciple of Rabbi Gamaliel, the grandson of Rabbi Hillel. He had two main schools of the Pharisees, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Paul was trained by Rabbi Gamaliel, the grandson of Rabbi Hillel. He had a highfalutin rabbinic education. He was a Pharisee, a big deal rabbi and a successful businessman in the ancient world in the tent trade. Right passport, and he knew Greco-Roman philosophy and languages as well as Hebrew and Aramaic, he knew Latin and Greek, and we read in the book of Acts, oh Paul, your great learning has driven you mad, even the pagans recognized his education and intellect. Quite a guy. Yet despite being a successful businessman, despite having quite an education, despite being a prominent rabbi who was trained by prominent rabbis, that did not equip him for the ministry. He had to spend his season in the wilderness. Something happens in the modern church. Every time a celebrity, a sports star, a pop star, a film star gets saved, they put him on TV. This is how the Vineyard Movement practically destroyed Bob Dylan. I saw an astronaut who had been saved two years. And they had him in a big church in New York laying hands on people. Because you walked on the moon, that automatically equips you to lay hands on people. They don't give these people a chance to grow. Now, it's fine for celebrities who get saved, or people of the world of some position who get saved, to give their testimony. That's a fine thing to do. They should do that. But that's all. You cannot say because somebody was such and such of the world, or even because they had a theological education, that automatically equips them to the ministry. It just doesn't work that way. They needed time to grow. And it was some years later before Paul's education does him any good. 
before his Roman passport, as it were, does him any good. Before his being an independent businessman of Tentre does him any good. It took some time before his being an intellectual did him any good. The spirits are set out to meet Barnabas and Saul. And so they go on their first missionary journey. But something happens. At this particular time, you had Gentile God-fearers. Because of the influences of Socrates, there were a lot of Greeks, people in the Greek world, who were fed up with the idolatry of Greek polytheism and superstition and idolatry. They were drawn to Judaism because Judaism was monotheistic. And they had the Septuagint now, they had the Hebrew scriptures in their own language. But there was a problem. They didn't want to go all the way and convert to Judaism for one reason. I can't say I blame them. They might have got me when I was a baby, but they wouldn't get me now. What was the problem? These were God-fearers. I would have been a scapel-fearer. But once the gospel comes, and they're told through repentance and faith in Jesus, they can have the same salvation as Jews, and be included in the same new covenant as Jews who believe, they begin flocking into the body of Christ in droves. But this automatically raises questions. How can these non-Jews become believers in a Jewish Messiah, worshippers of a Jewish God, without undergoing halakhic conversion to Judaism circumcision? So the apostles have a council at Jerusalem to make the decision. And not that I'm going into it now, we have tapes out there explaining him. This is the real meaning of Luo and Deo, binding and loosing. The apostles said, you're bound to keep this, but you're loose from the law. And we read what happens at this council in Acts 15, where these things are decided. In Acts 15, verse 13, after they stopped speaking, James, that is Yaakov, James, answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Well, this is the first church council. Now, it was this chapter, among others, but certainly this one, that caused the Roman Catholic Church to put the Bible on the index of banned books for so many centuries. It caused the Roman Catholic Cardinal during the Renaissance in Florence to say the writings of Paul are disgusting. You should read Greek and Roman classics instead. What was the Roman Catholic Church's problem with this chapter particularly? Well, if Peter was the first pope, why was James presiding at the first church council? Why does James say, brethren, listen to me, instead of listen to the pope? Also, why are most of the epistles written by Paul? Why aren't they papal epistles written, encyclicals written by Peter? The Gentiles were required to keep from idolatry, to keep from immorality, to keep from that which is strangled, which was cruelty to animals, but also had a pagan association, and to keep from the ritual consumption of blood. That's another problem. The apostles outlawed cannibalism and vampire religion. The Roman Catholic Church teaches transubstantiation, that the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ and you drink it. While the apostles outlawed the consumption of blood, the vampire religion is completely forbidden in the Word of God. Roman Catholicism is a vampire religion. Now, I don't believe that Roman Catholics are vampires or cannibals. I don't believe it, but they do. I don't believe they're really eating the literal body and drinking the literal blood of Christ, but they do. I don't think that Catholics are vampires or cannibals, but they, they think it. 
That's what that religion actually teaches. It's the actual protoplasm with the appearances of bread and wine. Another subject. The apostles condemn it. But these Gentiles don't have to undergo ritual circumcision or anything like that. So now, Paul and Barnabas have the decision of the apostles that the Holy Spirit gives to them. And of course, James in verse 19 says, It is my judgment, not the Pope's, not Peter's, that we do not trouble a corporate decision, a real magisterium in a sense, not what you have now, papal infallibility and the rest of it. But we read this now at the end of this chapter 15. Verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, now notice Paul is taking the initiative. Barnabas is playing second fiddle. Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The first great mission team of history now notice the apostles were sent out by Jesus in pairs. The Holy Spirit sends people out in pairs. And when the apostles planned the churches, they didn't ordain an elder, but elders. The biblical norm was a plurality of elders. The senior pastor is the primus inter pares, the first among equals. There was no monoepiscopacy. That was invented by someone called Ignatius of Antioch after the apostles. Biblically, there was always a plurality. There may have been one person standing out that God was using at a time, Peter on the day of Pentecost, James in Acts 15, etc. But biblically, there was always a plurality of leaders. The pastor was the primus and the paris, the first among equals. Nonetheless, they had a sharp disagreement. John Mark may have been related to Barnabas. Some people think that. But now the greatest mission team that had been probably the most important in the history of the church because of launched mission, split on bad terms. Godly men can disagree. And the Holy Spirit puts this in the Bible. Why? But these were apostles. They saw the Lord. If Paul and Barnabas can disagree, so can we. Most unfortunate. Now, later on, they patched this thing up. We see Paul speaking favorably of the same John Mark later on in one of the epistles. Obviously, it was patched up to some, to some degree. But the mission team was never reunited, as far as we know, in the book of Acts or from Eusebius or church history. As far as we know, that Barnabas seems to have been martyred on Cyprus. Nonetheless, Paul says, we're not taking this kid. He bailed out the last time. He's not mission field material. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, the Spirit said, Set out for me Barnabas and Saul. When the Holy Spirit leads somebody to a mission field, he does not send amateurs. He sends veterans. 
people who knew the language and the culture, at least were capable of learning it, and they'd been saved for some time. They were veterans. Even Paul's theological education did not, in right passport, did not equip him. Roman citizenship itself did not equip him for the ministry, for the ministry of the mission. I'm not saying it's wrong to send your youth group to paint the hospital in Bali or something like that. But when you actually send people to a foreign mission field, the Holy Spirit says send veterans or they're sent in the flesh. There's one organization that has no biblical right to exist called Youth of the Mission. It has no biblical right to exist. I've seen people in it that say in a few months and they're Catholic praying in tongues to Mary and all the rest of it, and they're going to be missionaries in the foreign, not biblical. Now Youth of the Mission is telling people you can call the Hawaiian volcano god Io, you can call Jesus by the volcano god's name and all this stuff. Absolutely wacky people, biblically ignorant, mixing paganism with the Bible, Youth of the Mission. Not biblical. The whole model is not scriptural. It's not of God. The Holy Spirit never sends veterans out of amateurs to mission fields. He sends veterans. So we have this Barnabas and John Mark. And Barnabas says, look, I know this kid goofed up. I know he got it wrong. But he has potential. I can see it in him. Take it from me. I saw the potential in you, Paul. I see the potential in John Mark. This kid has potential. I know he messed up. But we've got to give him another shot, another chance. We've got to get next to him and encourage him. Paul says, look, we're going into some heavy places with some heavy stuff. Persecution, opposition, places where the gospel's never been preached, maybe. We can't have this guy. He bailed out the last time. He's not up to it. Who was right and who was wrong? Well, in one sense, we have to say that Barnabas was later vindicated because Barnabas says, Paul speaks well of the same John Mark. On the other hand, mission fields are not for amateurs. Had the issue been doctrinal or moral, I have no doubt that Barnabas and Paul would have been of one accord. Had it been a doctrinal issue or a moral issue, I have no doubt they would have been of one mind. Doctrine is always black or white, right or wrong, true or false. Something is either ethical or unethical, moral or immoral. Morality is black and white, doctrine is black and white. But relational issues, pastoral issues, those things are seldom black and white. They are almost inevitably some shade of gray. Paul says, look, we can't take this guy. He bailed out the last time. We just can't take this risk. Barnabas says, the kid's got potential. I know he goofed up, but let's give him another shot. We'll get next to him and encourage him. Who's right, who's wrong? Well, they're both right. It's not a black and white issue. Doctrine is. Morality is. But relationships? Pastoral issues? Barnabas is approaching it pastorally, Paul is approaching it dogmatically. It's not a question of one right, one wrong. It's not that simple in these situations. And the Holy Spirit puts it in the Bible to teach us that if apostles can fall out and disagree, so can we. Not on doctrine, not on morals, but on relationship issues. Godly men can disagree seriously. So Paul sets out now 
And he goes with Silas. Luke is with them, and they eventually run into Timothy. Let's see what happens. Paul chose Silas after Barnabas goes with Mark to Cyprus. And departed being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And he came to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those regions, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. By circumcising Timothy, Paul was not violating the decree. Why? Because Timothy was Jewish, in his case, maternally Jewish. Circumcision was not part of the law. Circumcision was given before the law. It was patriarchal. It was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For a Jew to be circumcised, it was covenantal, but it was not mosaic. For a Gentile to undergo circumcision, it meant going under the law of Moses. It meant going under the law. For a Jew, it did not mean that. For a Jew, it had to do with cultural identity, not going under the law. But for a Gentile, it meant converting to Judaism a Judaism that at this point had largely rejected Christ already and was going to continue to do so. So it was not a violation of the decree given the fact that Timothy was Jewish. Jewish believers generally still circumcised their children, their male children. But then something happens. In the beginning it seems to be alright. When he sets out on his missionary journey, In the beginning, it seems to be not so bad. But then things begin to change. They run into rough water. Can we kill these lights, please? They begin up in Syria, and they go via Tarsus and Cilicia down to Derby and Lystra. That's where they go. They go this way. And he sets out without having his other half, his old mentor, Barnabas. But then things begin to become problematic. Now the book of Acts tells us the history of what happened. Acts tells us the history of what happened. But in the epistles, when Paul refers to this time in his life, he gives us the biography of what happened. He gives us the biographical account. Acts gives us the historical account. The epistles give us the biographical account. This is always important. Same as in the Old Testament. We have the biographical and the historical. Well, we begin with the historical. The book of Acts would give us the wrong impression that this was something that took place over a short period of time. In fact, it took place over a long period of time. This was a long walk in those days, plus the times they spent in these churches. This, of course, today is modern Turkey, southern, eastern, western, central Turkey. He comes, chapter 16, verse 1, to Darby, Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple named Timothy circumcises them, but then it continues. 
Verse 4, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering these decrees. And we read up to verse 5, the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Well, so far it seems to be alright. But then things go wrong. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's a massive province. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. What happens? From here on, it's all downhill. Pamphylia, no. Lystra, no. Asia, no. Iconium, no. Lydia, no. Bypass Ephesus, bypass Smyrna, Intermesia, and they wanted to go up past where Gallipoli is today, up towards where Istanbul would be today. That's Bithynia. No. No, 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 no. Now everything seems to grind to a halt. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Troas was literally the port that was at the end and still is at the end of the Roman road. The Roman road still exists. Nothing after it but the Adrian. It was the end of the road. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appearing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, <coughs> which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days, etc. Then the ministry explodes again. But first, everything seems to close down. We are told that the Holy Spirit forbade them to preach the word in Asia, and then the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them to go to Bithynia, Mysia. What is the difference between the Spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Well, obviously, they are both the third person of the triunity. They're both the Holy Spirit. But why in one verse is it called the Holy Spirit, and in the next verse, the Spirit of Jesus? There's a reason. We are told in the book of Revelation that the Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. In one place, there seems to have been a direct leading. Another place, some kind of prophetic message. Don't do it. God begins closing these doors. Now, it's an exhausted subject in its own right, but let's just look at it in brief insofar as it relates to Acts 15. How do you discern God's leading in these kinds of situations? How? The Spirit forbade them, the Holy Spirit did not permit them, the Spirit of Jesus said, don't do it. The first is always what I call the calibrator. The calibrator is how you measure everything else. 
the objective exegetical doctrine of Scripture. <clears throat> nothing subjective, nothing asegetical. Exegesis is taking out of the Word of God what the Holy Spirit put in there. Exegesis is taking out. Asegesis is reading something into it it doesn't say. When you take out of the text what's in there, that is inductive. When you draw your own conclusions, that is deductive. We go by the inductive. What does it say? Not what we want to deduce from it. The objective exegetical doctrine. The Holy Spirit will never lead us to do anything that is contrary to the Word of God doctrinally. I've seen people try to say, the Lord told me to divorce and remarry. I've known people who've actually tried to say that. I know people who've done it. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit does not lead us to do things contrary to Scripture. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not the lack of it. The Lord never let anybody dig into the Toronto deception. He does not contradict His word. If something contradicts Scripture doctrinally, it's not of God. The objective doctrinal meaning of the Word of God is the calibrator. It is by that standard we test every other indicator. But let's continue. Second, we are told that there is safety in an abundance of counselors. Not in counselors, but in an abundance of counselors. God can even speak to unsaved parents to a degree at times. Unfortunately, so can the devil. But God can certainly speak to saved parents. He can speak to a pastor, pastor's wife, an older brother, a sister in faith. But who is a counselor? It is not a new believer. It's not talkative Tessie or loquacious Larry. It is not big mouth Bessie. It's somebody who can keep their mouth shut. They will talk to God about your situation, not to other people. They are not a new believer. They're people of wisdom and discretion. When a number of people like that, of proven faithfulness, people of prayer and experience, when a number of them are telling you the same thing, there is safety in an abundance of counselors. That is a good indication of what God is saying when people who are people of prayer and experience begin telling you the same thing. We're all saying the same thing. That is an indication. <clears throat> Provided it agrees with Scripture. Third. Paul tells us our faith is reasonable. It is not reasonable to be a Mormon. It's absurd to believe this quake is living on the moon. 
It is not reasonable to be a Roman Catholic. It's absurd to believe bread and wine becomes Jesus incarnate. That's him returned. You pray to it, then you eat him like a cannibal and drink his blood like a vampire. He said he will not physically come back except the way he went in the clouds. He does not return in the Mass or in the Eucharist. Not in the Roman interpretation of it. It's not logical to be a Muslim to believe that a pedophile is a prophet. Not logical. But our faith is reasonable. It's not just reason, however, it is sanctified reason. Sanctified reason. Fourthly, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, did not permit them, or the Holy Spirit forbade them. <coughs> Direct reading. Well, how do you know this? When I lead somebody to Christ, one of the first things I tell them is when you talk, when you pray, you talk to God. When you read the Bible, he talks back. The longer and better you know somebody, the clearer you can identify their voice. The longer you're married, sometimes you know it's your husband before you pick up the phone. You know it's your wife before you pick up the phone. That's how well you know them. One word out of the mouth, you know it's them. Well, the more time you spend praying and reading the Bible, the more time you spend with Jesus, the better you'll be able to identify His voice speaking through the Holy Spirit. It's the same like any other relationship. How do you know your husband? How do you know your wife? How do you know your parents? How do you know your children? How do you know the Lord? Communication. The more time you spend communicating with Him, the clearer you'll know His voice. This comes with growth. But again, if it's Him... It will agree with Scripture. The Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. The Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. Charismata. Not charismaniac, charismata. It's not this nonsense. The Lord gave me a picture, I saw a vision, the Lord would say to you, my daughter, yes, my people run around doing that all the time. That is not prophecy, it is clairvoyance. We're talking about charismatic, not charismania. God speaks to these gifts, but they must be tested according to 1 Corinthians 14 by Scripture. Now you can be reading a passage of the Bible, and the Lord can just apply it to your circumstances. Spirit can just quicken it to your circumstances. And that may be true, but it will not contradict the objective exegetical meaning. You'll know His voice. Now there's more to it than this, but we have a fail-safe mechanism. A fail-safe mechanism. When all of this stuff seems to indicate we should do something or should not do something, when it all seems to be pointing in one direction, we can go forth in faith 
because of the fail-safe mechanism. What is it? It applied, of course, to the Church of Philadelphia, but it is a general truth. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 3. Verse 7, to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now again, popes have claimed to have this key. <laughs> Misinterpreting what Jesus told Peter, I give you the keys, he gave those keys to interpret the scripture to the apostles corporately. This key, he has the key. Popes would actually say, I have the key and I can say who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And they would force nations to declare war on each other and stuff. Popes actually did this. Uh, Jesus has the keys to the kingdom. Satan can open doors, but he cannot open a door Christ has closed. Satan can close doors. Paul says this, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. Satan can close doors, but he cannot close a door Christ has opened. When he opens, nobody shuts. When he shuts, no one opens. When all this stuff adds up, and it seems we should do something, we can go forth in faith and say, Lord, if this is not of you, you close the door. Don't let me get out of your will. You'll hear a voice, this is the way, walk in it. Direct leading. The scriptures tell us, commit your work to the Lord, your plans will be established. If we're determined to do his will, he will show us what it is. We have a fail-safe mechanism. What is it? Providencia Divina. Divine Providence. He opens, nobody shuts. He shuts, nobody opens. But here, something happens. God is shutting the doors. The Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. The Holy Spirit forbade them. This is one of the most difficult, arguably the most difficult point of Paul's ministry. Possibly the most difficult. Certainly one of the most difficult. He writes about it twice. Now we've looked at the history of what happened. Now let's look at the biography of what happened. Let's look at what it was like for him and Silas and Luke and Timothy to experience this. Again, this was a much longer time than you get the impression of reading. You have to look at the map to see how long it would have been. Please kill the lights. And continue with me, please, now, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, he writes to the Corinthians, <coughs> of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, 
in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised us the dead. Despair even of life. He didn't despair of the ministry. That would be easy. Despair of the marriage, despair of the career, despair of the business, despair of the church, despair of the ministry, despair of life. They wished they were dead. Either I hope the Lord comes or I hope he comes for me. I don't want to be here anymore. Despair of life. And we know what happened and why. There was a lot of opposition. Well, first of all, he obviously got opposition from the pagans. But you expect that. Now, he didn't exactly set out on his best foot. Barnabas was gone. Paul's coming, Paul's coming back. Hallelujah, Paul's coming. More people will be saved. He's going to teach the word of God. Hey, Paul's coming, Paul's coming, Paul's coming. Paul's here, hallelujah. Oh, Paul's here, praise the Lord. Where's Barnabas? Well, you know, Barnabas, he's a good brother and everything, you know. <laughs> he's got to begin by explaining to these churches why Barnabas is no longer his partner in the ministry. That's quite a situation in itself. But then he gets opposition from the pagans. Okay, that's a given. They worship demons, Moses and Paul tell us. But then he gets opposition from his fellow Jews. Nobody will give it to you in the back worse than your own kind. It doesn't matter what race you are. Nobody will give it to you in the back worse than your own kind. Paul was a Jew. So is my son Eli. Tell you a true story. Don't like to back brag about my children. I'm going to do it anyway. My son got the highest A-level in college, the highest grade in Judaism in the entire UK. His background was math, but he did an A-level in Judaism. And he got the highest grade in Judaism in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and England. Now normally when a Jewish kid gets the highest A-level in college, he gets a scholarship from the Board of Deputies of British Jews. He gets his picture in the Jewish Telegraph and the Jewish Chronicle newspaper. He gets to have lunch with the Israeli ambassador. He gets to have lunch with the chief rabbi, and he gets a free trip to Israel because he had the highest A-level in Judaism. My son Eli, the Jew, got nothing because he believed Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. He was an embarrassment to the Jewish community. He got nothing. He was an embarrassment. I heard him at the time, but he came to understand it's just the way it is. Nobody will give it to you in the back worse than your own kind. Nobody. Doesn't matter. Italian, Aboriginal, Greek Orthodox, Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, your own kind are going to give it to you in the back worse. It hurts a lot more when you get it from your own kind. Nobody will give it to you in the back worse than your own people. Take my word. I don't care what your people are. They'll give it to you in the back if you're saved. And it will hurt a lot more than when somebody else does it. But then... He gets it from his own government. He was a Roman citizen. <clears throat> and after Danny Naella and Pastor Scott, your own government's coming after you too. 
You guys need to pray and you need to take a stand. And you need to write letters appealing to Caesar is biblical. So he gets from the pagans, from his fellow Jews, he gets from his own government, but then he begins to get it from the church, from false brethren, from backslidden brethren. And he writes about this, as we'll see in a few minutes. Gets it from the pagans, from his fellow Jews, from his fellow Romans, but then he gets it from the church. Then after that, things got tough. Then it seemed like God put his hand against him. You reach a time in your ministry where it seems like God is against you. You reach a time in your life, it seems like God is against you. It's not that he wants to give up on the ministry. He wants to give up on life. You can't take the marriage anymore. You can't take the business anymore. You can't take the profession anymore. You can't take the career anymore. You can't take the church anymore. You can't take it anymore. He couldn't take life anymore. It seemed like God was against him. Everything he tried to do, everywhere he tried to go, there was opposition and one door closed after another. Look at the map once more. Pamphlia, no. Lystra, no. Asia, no. Iconium, no. Oh, maybe he wants us to pop into Ephesus, no. Oh, maybe Smyrna, no. We'll go to Mysia, no. I know, he wants us to turn north to Bithynia, no. No, 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 no. Everything he tries to do, no. Now it's not just the pagans or the government, or the rabbis, or even the false brethren. Now, it's the Spirit of Jesus. Now, it's the Holy Spirit. Now, it's God closing doors. Everywhere I go is no, everything I try is no, every door is closed. Why am I in the ministry? Why am I in the mission field? Why did you call me to this? They despaired of life. These are apostles who saw Christ. They despaired of being alive in this world. I don't care how tough you are. Everybody has a breaking point. Believe me, Clint Eastwood and James Bond only exist on the silver screen. <laughs> in an article in Great Britain about commandos in the British SAS, these things were unbelievable what they were doing. The training itself would have finished off the average person, but the stuff they did was incredible. As long as they were in the SAS, they could do these incredible things. But once they left, they couldn't function in the civilian world, and they had a suicide rate that was unbelievable. Everybody has their breaking point, including apostles. No matter how tough you are, no matter how resilient, you have a breaking point. The devil certainly knows where it is. They despaired even of life. 
But look what it says. He says, I want you to know, brethren, what happened to us at this time in Asia. We were burdened excessively, in verse 8, beyond our strength, so we despaired of life. They were burdened beyond their strength. As a young believer, I had this silly religious idea because I misread a verse in James. I misunderstood a verse in James. The idea I had went something like this. Oh, thank you, Lord, that no matter what happens to me, you'll never allow me to be burdened beyond my strength. You'll never give me more than I can handle. Amen. <laughs> it sounds very religious and everything, but it's not biblical. In fact, it's rather silly and naive. The apostles were burdened beyond their strength. And any Christian, every Christian, who is serious about realizing the purposes of Christ for their life will reach some point in their life when they too will be burdened beyond their strength. The Lord is quite willing to allow us to be burdened beyond our strength. He is simply not willing for us to be burdened beyond His strength, which is magnified in our weakness. There's a big difference. He lets us come to the point where we can't go on anymore, where we can't handle it, where we can't take it, where we don't have the strength, that we could know his strength, who's magnified in the weakness, then we become unstoppable. But before we come into that strength, we have to come to the end of our own. We have to reach the end of the road. Asia, no. Iconium, no, Lystra, no, Bithynia, no, Mesia, no, here I am, Croas, nowhere left to go, the end of the road. So I couldn't take this anymore. But then he writes about this again. Only when he writes about it again, he writes about it in an incredible way. Turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy. If this were not such a gruesome time, I doubt he would have kept writing about it. Of course, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write about it, but there is a human dimension to what he wrote. Look what he says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 11. Persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. There he is. Iconium and Lystra. Persecutions and sufferings, he says, then he continues. What does he say about it? I endured these things, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When the scriptures say Jesus Christ, it is him on earth, but it says Christ Jesus is him in eternity. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If the world doesn't hate you, make sure you're really saved. <laughs> this is not to say we shouldn't seek to have a good name, even with those outside the church, we should. But if you're not receiving opposition for what you believe, make sure you're a believer. It goes with the turf. This is Satan's territory. 
And we are here to usher in the new kingdom that heralds his downfall, and he doesn't like that. We are commandos dropped in the back of enemy lions preparing the way for the coming invasion. He knows that he's trying to get us. He doesn't like us. And if he's leaving you alone, you better make sure you don't belong to him. But then it continues. He does something here. He puts this into an eschatological paradigm. In other words, he says, what happened to him, just leave it dark, at this time? What happened to Luke and to Timothy and to Silas and himself at this time? Is what is going to happen to all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus in the last days. This, what happened to him, is going to happen to us before Jesus comes. Let's look at the context he writes about it. Dark in that, please just leave it dark. Thank you. Realize this, he says in verse 1. In the last days, difficult times will come. Man will be lovers of self. Psychology, the religion of man. <coughs> lovers of self, lovers of money. This is not just talking about the world. It is talking about a backslidden church. In context. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient, the parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, as in Toronto and Pensacola. Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I love verse 5, Barbara Thiering, holding to a form of religion but denying the power therein, liberal theology, higher criticism. Avoid men such as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down by sins, led on by various impulses. I can't tell you how many of these guys are sexual predators. They misuse the ministry to be sexual predators. Ian Bilby, Pat Masini, Jim Baker. That's only the tip of the iceberg. You'd be better off going out and fooling around with a whore than you would be misusing the ministry to pray on one of the daughters of Christ. Yeah. <clears throat> but look at this. Look what he says. Always learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, just like these liberal scholars. And just as Jonathan John Brace opposed Moses, these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards to the faith. But they'll not make further progress. Their folly will be obvious to all as those two came to be. Who were Jonathan John Brace? Pharaoh's magicians. What did they do? Counterfeit signs and wonders. They counterfeited the miracles of Moses and Aaron. The way the Antichrist and false prophet are going to counterfeit the miracles of Jesus and his witnesses. Jonas and John Bray's Benny and Kenny. <laughs> but they'll make not further progress. Their folly will become evident to all. Same as Frank Houston 
Jim Baker. Do you follow my teaching? Conduct yourself. Purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. Then he goes on. Persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord had delivered me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. These is true. Asia. Bobby. is going to happen to all of us in the last days. And it's happening. They reached the end of the road. But then something happens. When they reach the end of the road, they have the death of their vision. That original vision that Paul had in Acts 15, we're going to go back and strengthen these churches, we're going to do this and that. Good motive. But what Paul had in mind for Paul was very different than what God had in mind. He had to experience the death of his vision in order that he may have experienced the birth of Christ. He had to reach the end of the road before it happened. You see, Paul was thinking about Mysia and Bithynia and Iconium. He was thinking about Laodicea and Colossae, maybe. And he was thinking about Smyrna and Ephesus. But God was thinking about Macedonia, Greece, the Peloponnese, even Rome itself, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Athens. Places Paul never dreamed of doing things he could never fathom in his wildest imagination. You see, the things that God had in mind for Paul were beyond and above anything Paul had in mind for Paul. Don't be so surprised when you reach the end of your road and the death of your vision that the things that God has in mind for you are above and beyond anything you had in mind for you. There is nobody serious about pursuing the purposes of Christ in their life, fulfilling their calling, that will not reach the end of the road. Now later on, of course, we see in the book of Acts, chapter 18, 19, and so forth, 20, he goes back to these places, Ephesus and so on. It does eventually happen. but with much more impact than it ever would have happened. Sometimes when God says no, in fact, very often when God says no, no does not mean no, no means not yet. I've got other stuff for you to do. You'll understand later. In retrospect, you'll see what I was doing. Trust me. You'll hear a way, a voice, this is the way walking No does not always mean no. Very often, no means not yet. He goes to Philippi via Samothrace and then things 
explodes, the ministry takes off like a space shuttle. It was the death of his vision, the birth of God's. It was the end of what he had in mind. It was the advent of what God had in mind for him. But in order to get there, in order to get to Philippi, in order to get to Macedonia, he had to go to Troas. He had to reach the end of the road. The end of the road. The place where he despaired of life. The place where everybody and everything was against him. Not just the devil, not just the pagans, not just his own people, not just his own government, but even the church. And then God himself closed all these doors. It seemed like even God was against him. He reached the end of the road. Only when he reached the end of the road geographically, literally, physically, reaching the end of the geographical, literal, physical road was simply emblematic of the fact that he reached the end of the road spiritually and emotionally. He just couldn't take it anymore, we're told in Corinthians. He reached the end of the road. He had no place left to go, literally and geographically, no place left to go. That was it. End of the road, the Aegean, that's it. No place left to go. But neither did he have the will to go on, or the needs, or the emotional strength, or the spiritual strength, or the wherewithal. He reached the end of the road. The end of the road. At some point in your life as a Christian, if it has not happened already, you will reach the end of the road. Before Jesus comes, the whole faithful church will reach the end of the road. If you are going to achieve the real blessings and purposes of Christ for your life in this world, the only way to get there is via Troas, via the end of the road. When you have no more strength, then his strength will be magnified in your weakness. That it will be the death of your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, the death of your vision. That will be the birth of his. The end of the road. What a place to be. The end of the road. Undoubtedly, even tonight, there are people here who are approaching the end of the road. Well, if you are at the end of your road, if you have reached the end of the road, or when you get to the end of the road, which you surely will, or if you are approaching the end of the road, when it happens, when you're at the end of the road, allow me to be the first to congratulate you upon your arrival. When you get to the end of the road, allow me please to be the first to applaud your arrival. When you get to the end of the road, allow me please to welcome you to the end of the road with alacrity. Why am I so keen to welcome you to the end of the road? Why am I so 
enthusiastic to applaud your arrival at the end of the road? Why am I so excited to congratulate you for reaching the end of the road? Where you just can't go on anymore? Where you have no more strength, no more power, no more desire, no more options? Why do I want to welcome you, applaud your arrival to the end of the road? Because in the grace and strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, because in the grace of the one whose strength is magnified in our weakness, the end of the road is a very good place to be. God bless you.